It's Thursday, March 29th, and this is Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill, and joining me in studio today from Motley Fool Stock Advisor Jason Moser and from Million Dollar Portfolio Charlie Travers. Happy Thursday, guys. Happy Thursday. Happy Thursday. Uh, we are going to wrap up the week with a round of Yes, No, Maybe So. This is where the guys come to the table with two stocks they really like, two stocks they really don't like. <laughs> Uh, and a couple they're on the fence about, but we will start with the yes stocks. Uh, Charlie, what's your yes stock? Uh, Nokia, the Finnish phone maker. Yeah. 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 Going out on a limb. I was going to say, because this is, I mean, you know it's not 1997 anymore, right? Yeah, if it's not a buying opportunity at a 15-year low, when is it a buying <laughs> opportunity? Uh, but what I like about Nokia is that under CEO Stephen Elop's leadership for the last year and a half, they've finally position themselves where they're at a spot where they can turn the corner. And what I find most compelling about the company right now is they have a catalyst coming next week. The Lumia 900 phone is going to launch on the AT&T network. This phone won the best smartphone award at January's Consumer Electronics Show. And I think that gets them back in the game. You're going to pick one up? I am. Wow, you, so you're putting your money where your mouth is. I am. I'm actually not that happy with my iPhone 4 because I find the 3G reception is not that great. Really? So I don't know if it's an Apple problem or an AT&T problem, but I figure if I try this new phone out, I'll, I'll find out for sure. What do you think, Jason? I mean, I'm still stuck in the you know 1990s. I've got like the Nokia Flip that's you know about yay big. And yes. Which is, I think that's the last time anyone in the U.S. bought a Nokia phone. It was about 90. Probably. And I mean, it was just I, I was fresh out of Kazakhstan and just loving the you know the SIM card, low the minutes, and not getting a monthly bill. And so so yeah. far, it's worked. So I mean, ultimately, does this come down? To the valuation, because we we talked earlier in the week about um, uh, Nokia uh, going into China with its first smartphone in China. That's going to come uh, in early April. Um, but you know, China is a different market. Right. It's you know, the, you don't have the subsidies for the phone, so right. people are going to have to pony up five hundred, six hundred dollars to get them. Uh, and, you know, our colleagues, Bill Mann and Tim Hanson, were pretty skeptical that Nokia was going to make a go of it, at least in terms of the smartphone in China. Well, so they have phones at a very wide range of price points uh, tailored to the individual markets. For example, they went from 2 million feature phones in India up to 18 million because they can charge a lower price for them. Uh, so they really try to get the best technology they can at an affordable price point specific to that market. Okay. And the ticker symbol for Nokia? And okay. <clears throat> All right. Jason Moser, what is your yes stock? Chris, what if I told you that you could print your very own smartphone cover? What would you say? I would say uh, I'll take it because my smartphone cover is actually broken right now. So well, that you would get one with pastel ponies on it. That technology <laughs> is what I am pitching to you today. Okay. Uh, 3D technology, 3D systems. Um, the ticker is DDD. It's a company that we cover on Stock Advisors, and uh, it is in the the job of 3D printing. It's uh, what they call additive manufacturing, and it's it's a little bit. I think the biggest trick here is to get your mind around the actual possibilities and how this thing works. Uh, but it's more or less printing off items with unique geometries, anything from a, in, in, you know, a smartphone cover or a hearing aid or prosthetics or dental work. Uh, so it is something I think that's really taking manufacturing to a, to a new level here. And uh, so 3D Systems is really making this possible. Uh, they, they sell printers, essentially. These are very special printers, Chris. I was going to say. Uh, but the real attractive part of the business, I think, beside the technology, is that they make most of their money, 70% of their revenues, come from just the recurring sales of supplying uh, the printers with the materials to print off these uh, different kinds of items. And so... Uh, Yes, still very new, and yes, I think there are probably plenty of skeptics as to how widely this can be rolled out, but it is a, it is a fun one to follow, and I think that uh, 
you know, given given the runway that they have and the, and the price the stock trades for today, it's it's an in, interesting one to look at. What is the growth potential for something like this? Because I can I can see I, I I can wrap my head around some businesses in some industries wanting and needing this technology and paying for it, but it's hard for me to get my head around any sort of application in the consumer market. Well, I think and that's just the attractive part because if it is something that provides the economics uh, to, you know, we have so many things that are manufactured abroad, uh, manufactured abroad these days, built in China or whatnot, that if we're, if we're you know, presenting an argument that could bring some of that manufacturing back over to, to our side of the pond via, uh, you know, additive manufacturing, then I think it certainly, you know, provides a very uh, long runway of growth. But you know, I think again, it remains to be seen exactly how widely accepted this can this can be and and how effective it can be. But but it looks promising. What's the biggest competitive threat for a business like this? Is it a, is it another company like Stratasys, or is it just sort of um, executing and and in a way that they're able to convince more and more businesses to pay for this? I think probably it's the it's convincing businesses that this is something that's real and, and possible. Uh, you have to believe that when we're pitching this as a company worth investing in, just as an investor, you're sitting there thinking, "Wow, is it, I, I'm still a little bit a little bit skeptical." Now, if you're running a multi-million dollar business and you're and you're providing, you know, ear, hearing aids or something for yeah. for patients, uh, I think the skepticism would be even that much greater. And so, I think really it's going to be convincing people that the technology is real and is superior. Uh, if we can do that, if they can do that, then I think really the the sky's the limit. All right, let's move over to the no stocks. Uh, Charlie, what do you got? I got GameStop. GameStop, the bricks and mortar game, video, game, video game software and console seller. You'll find them in pretty much any mall in the country and strip malls as well. Very popular store. They're definitely the number one company in their space. I just don't find the space that attractive. I was going to say, they're, they're so popular that you hate the stock? <laughs> yeah, right, right. Uh, Stores are overrated. So the PlayStation and Xbox consoles are very long in the tooth, and the next generation versions are uh, being rumored to come out next year. And kind of the buzz right now is that these consoles are not going to allow consumers to play used games on them. Really? Which is a bit of a problem for GameStop because that's almost half of their gross profit is from selling used games. Do you think that that's, um, uh, I mean, is that Sony and Microsoft basically looking at GameStop and, and basically saying, hey, if we add this new feature to the next generation of our game systems, then a company like that is just gone? I think as much as anything else, those companies want to drive consumers to use their digital download services like Xbox Live, which I use personally, and it's fantastic instead of going and buying a used game for 5 or $8. Um, what turns it around for GameStop? I mean, that, yeah. that sounds... I mean, I, I, we've talked before about bricks-and-mortar companies, right. Best Buy and, and, and that sort of thing, and, and sort of the trouble that those companies are in. And you look over the last couple of years, and, and Best Buy you know, and Barnes and & Noble and GameStop and, you know, right. and others sort of closing stores. So it's not hard to see that trend. But this one seems like this This is almost like the, the coming death blow. It could be, but management is actually very proactive on this point. They've seen this coming, and they've taken their digital sales from basically uh, nothing two years ago up to be a very significant part of their revenue. They want to grow that at a very quick pace, over 50% a year over the next couple of years. Uh, so they're, they're fighting back. It's not like they're sitting there with their head in their sand, ignoring what's going on in the industry. But I think despite their proaction and the smart moves they're making, uh, they have a big hurdle to jump. And the ticker? Uh, GME. GME. Jason, what's your no stock? Uh, just going with home builders in general. Um, I think that 
there isn't any real reason to believe that home builders have that that much going for them right now. I mean, I know that we look, generally speaking, they're at 52-week highs, many yeah. of them are. And if you look back over the past six months, you know, the market's been up about 20 or so percent. Home builders, for the most part, have just spanked the market. Um, I, I attribute that partly to just, you know, the the overall uh, optimism with the market as it's been over the past six months. But, you know, I don't really see how we still have, there's still so many homes out there, either in the foreclosure process or just coming back onto the market from the foreclosure process. So many uh, homes that are owned by the banks that are on their balance sheets that haven't even come back. Uh, we have still so many, what, 12 million or so homeowners that are underwater on their mortgages, six times more than, than when it was six years ago. I just don't see a market here where we're going to have a shortage of homes anytime soon. Uh, you know, in fact, the Bernanke white paper I've referred to before uh, referred to before talks of you know anywhere from one to two million homes coming into the foreclosure uh, coming into the market from the foreclosure pipeline over the next couple of years, and so that coupled with uh, I think tighter financing requirements and still you know what is historically high unemployment. Uh, I don't see any reason why home builders should be performing well. And certainly, just recently, we saw results from KB and Toll Brothers that, that were less than stellar. Cancel orders are, uh, are coming back to haunt them a little bit now. And so, rather than try to play the home builders, I would play something a little bit more towards the line of, you know, where, where people are either going to have to buy a home or rent a home. You know, a company like Home Depot, for example, would benefit from that, or Sherwin Williams, or, or uh, even Scott's Miracle Grow. So, home builders, I think, just. We'll be jumping on that bandwagon. Now, earlier today at The Motley Fool, we had Robert Schiller as our, as our guest. Uh, yes. he, he spoke to the company in the rotunda. Brian Richards, our editor-in-chief, did a Q&A with him. Um, he's going to be the guest on Motley Fool Money this weekend. And, I mean, this is the guy who called the housing bu- bubble. This is the guy for whom the Case-Shiller Index – I mean, he's the co-creator <laughs> of the Case-Shiller Index. A little bit of credibility. Yeah, yeah, the guy's got some credibility in housing. Was there anything he said – today that made you think, you know what, maybe it's not quite as dire as I think, or are you, or are you just, or did he just confirm everything you already thought about housing in America? No, I think he, he more or less confirmed what I, pretty much what I think about housing to begin with. I mean, I, I think that we ran through a period of time here where there was so much speculation in the housing market where individuals just looked at houses as investments, but the wrong kind of investment. I mean, as a homeowner, I mean, I, I see a home as an investment for my family. It's a place to live, a place that we can, you know, Hang our hats at night, but I don't look at it as you know a way to to double my money over the next ten years. Uh, and so I think that what we saw over the past ten, fifteen years was just that type of behavior. There's so much speculation uh, that we are you know paying paying the price for that today. So if anything, I think he really more or less just confirmed what what I what I tend to believe. All right, let's wrap up with the maybe so stocks stocks that you are on the fence about. Charlie, what do you got? Can, can I duck under the table first? <laughs> <laughs> I got Apple as my maybe so. Really? I, I admire the company. I, I love what they do. Uh, but I have two problems. Uh, trees don't grow to the sky. This is a gazillion dollar market cap stock. I, I just wonder how high that's going to go. Uh, but a, a, a more serious problem, I think, is Tim Cook. Because under Steve Jobs' leadership, Apple was 100% fanatically focused on delivering products that people would absolutely love. And one of Tim Cook's conference calls around the time that they announced the dividend and the share buyback, there was a lot in there that made me feel like the focus is starting to shift towards pandering to Wall Street. And I don't want to be reading articles about Apple three years from now questioning whether or not Apple has lost its magic. And I just worry there's a small chance of that happening uh, under Cook. Uh, I hope it doesn't because I really love what they do. But I just have a little bit of an eyebrow raise when I saw things like that. Well, let me play devil's advocate just on that notion, just uh, on the notion of pandering to Wall Street, because 
you could make the argument that um, any outreach to Wall Street would would be seen as pandering, just sure. because famously for you know the last decade, Steve Jobs you know pretty much ignored Wall Street. There was there was no way that Apple was going to pay a dividend. Um, there was no outreach. There was no consulting, right. um, and so certainly compared to that. Tim right. Cook, uh, you know, it, it seems like a radical shift. But you know, if you take a step back, he's not really doing anything above and beyond what sort of the average CEO is doing, is he? Uh, no, and I, I think that's what I would disagree with. Steve Jobs' comment was that you don't build a great company by buying back your stock, and that's a philosophy I wholeheartedly endorse. And Apple buying—it's a small amount of money for Apple, three billion a year over three years—is uh, trivial for them. It's more about the. Uh, the, the feeling it, behind it. What it represents. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, if you look at that shares, the share shares outstanding are up 7% over the past five or six years anyway. Right. So, I mean, it's quite plainly all they're doing this for is to offset that, that dilution. Right. And that doesn't return really anything to any shareholder's pockets. And especially when you consider now that, you know, the the commoditization factor is coming into play for Apple because so many homes have Apple products. I think I read something the other day where one – one in every two homes has an Apple device, yeah. and those homes have, I think, somewhere of 2.6 to 3 devices per home. Now, you're talking about like these news coming out for the iPhone 5, yeah. and yeah, at some pe- point pe- or another. People like you skew that average because you have like ni- 19 yeah. Apple products in your home. So. <laughs> Possibly. I don't know if it's <laughs> I think that I have many. Four or five, so. But yeah, I mean, that's just it, though. You, you start to wonder at some point or another, then it's just maintaining sort of the status quo, and I think that as time goes on, you know, this technology just becomes more and more accepted and the norm. So that commoditization factor comes into play, which, yeah, I mean, w- what is the point where they do stop growing and more or less have to start maintaining? I just don't it? want to worry about them playing the quarterly beat by a penny yeah. earnings game. I That's don't want a good to see point. that. Jason, what's your maybe sell stock? LinkedIn. I want to like this stock. I really, <laughs> really do. Now, I will wholeheartedly admit I'm not a LinkedIn subscriber or user. Uh, but for that matter, I'm not on Facebook either. So my skepticism, at least with LinkedIn, is I'm not sure what they provide that Facebook couldn't provide. I mean, I understand the difference between personal social networking and professional networking. Yep. But what's to say that Facebook can't add this dynamic to their service? And Facebook has somewhere in the neighborhood of 800 million subscribers versus a significantly lower amount for LinkedIn. I mean, somewhere yep. in the neighborhood of, I don't know, less than 100. Um, some of the things that give me pause about this, I mean, I don't like the dual share uh, the dual share class system there. You've got uh, you know two, two classes of shares that put about 94% of the voting power completely in management's hands. So investors at this point are just along for the ride. And the stock right now trades for 20 times sales, which is expensive. When you look at something like Google, which is about 20 times as big and trades for about five and a half times sales. So there's, opti- there's, there's obviously a lot of optimism priced into the stock. They, they do have a number of ways they generate money, which is great. I like that. Uh, but again, I can't quite get past the Facebook factor here. I just I have to believe that there's something that Facebook can roll out to really compete against this, and that's one of those things I can't quite get past. I know from talking just anecdotally to our own human resources people here at the Motley Fool that they love it. They like LinkedIn. Yeah, they love yeah. LinkedIn. They they it's just um, dramatically improved the lives of of our HR people and, frankly, what I've heard from them, from their colleagues in the HR world. So I think that, you know, in terms of its reception to the business community, uh, it, it's very highly regarded. And I think that's where, obviously, you pointed to the revenue. I mean, it's, it's, it's companies, um, 
you know, paying them for that uh, for their information and and for their data and that sort of thing. But um, so I think that Facebook certainly is in that position where they can do anything. But it's it's almost. I feel like this happens a lot with Facebook, with Google, with with companies that either have huge user bases or huge huge amounts of cash that you that we just sort of look at them and go, well, if they wanted to, they could go do that. It's like, well, they could, but I don't know if they're like. But is it really worth the cost? Is it yeah. worth? Yeah, is it worth the cost? Is it worth the cost for Facebook to and, do that? And the distraction from what they want, which is communications about everything, they don't want a niche conversation about your workplace. Yeah. It's interesting. You know, my wife is in a, an executive MBA program, and it's an international-based program. So you have students from all over the world. And it's she did notice that outside of outside of the U.S. students, the you know Chinese and Indian students and everyone else, that internationally speaking, that LinkedIn is much more the norm as opposed to Facebook. And so they tend to keep up with each other on LinkedIn more than Facebook. So I just thought that was an interesting sort of dynamic there. It goes to support that that professional networking uh, idea. And I think, and really, in all honesty, if this stock, if this stock were cheaper, it'd be way more attractive to me. Uh, price is the one where I, I just can't quite get past it. But you know, maybe missing the boat. So uh, if, if if you just you know if you get canned from your job here at the Motley Fool, let's hope that doesn't happen. Then are you going to hop onto LinkedIn? Because I think <laughs> it seems like the kind of place that you'd want to be. I very well may have to. <laughs> And in that case, I will let you know. I'm on LinkedIn. Charlie's on, on LinkedIn. All right. You know what? Get on LinkedIn. Right. We'll, we'll actually link to you. In the minority. But I got two friends then right there. Perfect. I'm on. Right. I'm on board. Jason yeah. Moser, Charlie Travers. Guys, thanks for being here. Thank you. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and the Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's it for this edition of Market Foolery. Our producer is Matt Greer. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. See you on Monday.